X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Thursday. It's Thursday, September 20, Ember 4th. I started saying September 20, Ember 3rd yesterday, and Will Romy, the intrepid editor, made clear to me that that is what is known as a spoonerism. I said it on accident. But apparently, William Archibald Spooner of Oxford reportedly did this, and now, if you mix up parts of the word in a phrase, it's known as a spoonerism. X-ray. Today, back in the day, September 20, Ember 4th, 1789, the first United States Congress signed the Judiciary Act, which established the federal judiciary. It was Congress's very first session. Article 3 of the Constitution had already established the Supreme Court. It gave the federal government the option to establish lower courts. It did not require it. Most agreed with the importance of the Supreme Court. The Anti-Federalists rejected the notion of lower federal courts, fearing that a wider federal judiciary could yield tyranny. Then over the summer of 1789, Senator Oliver Ellsworth drafted the Judiciary Act, which aimed to establish those lower courts. It passed the Senate by a vote of 14 to 6. The Senate was smaller then. The country was smaller then. But in the U.S. House, things moved more slowly. Legislators debated the bill for two months, finally passing an amended version on a vote of 37 to 16. And on September 24, 1789, that bill hit the desk of President George Washington, who signed it into law. It established six Supreme Court justices. The court was expanded 70 years later to nine justices. We'll talk more about that another day, I suspect. It established 13 judicial districts between the 11 ratified states, and it created the Office of the Attorney General, whose job was to represent the United States before the Supreme Court. That job has seemed to be evolving as well recently. And today, back in the day, September 24th, 1893, a racist mob of about 200 people descended on La Grande, Oregon. The small town in eastern Oregon had grown in size throughout the late 1800s. Miners and rail workers moved west on the Oregon Trail, and LeGrand became a major stop for travelers when the Oregon Railway and Navigation Company, ORNN, finished a major rail line through the town. Around that time, a sizable population of Chinese immigrants had grown in LeGrand. Some had once worked in the mines or on the railroad. They'd settled in LeGrand, opening stores, taking agricultural jobs. But in 1893, about 200 armed men swept through LeGrand, looting and burning Chinese-owned businesses and homes. They drove Chinese residents to the nearby rail depot in Orodell and demanded those immigrants leave the country. Contemporary articles stated the LeGrand sheriff tried to protect the Chinese residents, but public sentiment was largely aligned against the Chinese residents in Oregon. Over 50 of the looters were arrested, 10 of them charged with arson. Every single one of them found not guilty. And by the way... In case my tone of voice suggests I knew about that all the time, no, I didn't know about that. I think about Alex Trebek. His tone of voice always sounds like he knew the answers. I did not know this ever freaking happened. I am horrified that this happened. I hope you are too. <sighs> Today we will have your Quick 6 News headlines. We'll have an interview with Jennifer Rhodes, president of the Community Foundation of Southwest Washington. Today is their day of giving to nonprofits called... Give more 24. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. New state budget projections are very hopeful despite the pandemic. Projections are looking better than previously expected, according to state economists. Cost-saving efforts from the August special session and Governor Kate Brown's recent vetoes could leave Oregon with $1.7 billion more than it currently plans to spend. Billions in federal aid, of course, has also helped prop up Oregon businesses. Personal, corporate, and cannabis taxes all came in higher than expected last year, so the state has more revenue than previously predicted. Economists also project there will be less job loss in future years, and they project a faster economic recovery. Let's hope their optimism is warranted, but these numbers reflect only part of Oregon's economic picture. 
Rich taxpayers might be providing the state with bigger returns, but low-income Oregonians have been hit hard. There's still record levels of unemployment, 50,000 unemployment claims still stalled in adjudication right now, and the devastation from the fires still growing. So increased state revenue, good sign, but only part of the picture. As Representative Nancy Nathanson said from Eugene, I'm concerned the picture we're hearing right now is that everyone is fine and doing remarkably well. Your daily dose of coronavirus data, 193 new cases, 31,313 total cases, six new deaths from the virus confirmed yesterday, bringing us up to 532. We are now past 200,000 in the country confirmed, by the way, right around the time the current president of the United States won't commit to a peaceful transition of power. The COVID-19 spike has disrupted Clark County's reopening plans for schools. Clark County in southwest Washington has seen more than 400 positive cases since Labor Day weekend. Other summer holidays caused similar spikes, and the wildfire season also saw an increase in COVID cases. That rate of new cases puts Clark County in the high-risk territory, so plans to reopen most schools there have stalled for the time being. It could be weeks until the restrictions on in-class learning relax. Once the county returns to medium risk, they will have to stay there for two weeks before classes can resume. A new business coalition is opposing new transportation funding. The $5 billion measure would fund a new TriMet Max line and also improve transit infrastructure across the region. It was put together by Metro, elected leaders, environmental advocates, and business people. And there are a lot of projects wrapped up in the measure. It would help build TriMet's new fleet of electric buses. It would fund free youth bus passes. It would fund free youth bus passes as well as new, safer walking routes for kids going to school. It has some initiatives built in to prevent residential displacement near new transportation projects. But Kevin Looper and Dan Levy, political consultants, are working with the corporate coalition to end the thing. How come? The measure be funded by 0.6% payroll tax on businesses with 25 or more employees. And those middle and larger sized businesses, they say the cost is too high. Projects will start immediately if the measure passes. The tax won't begin until 2022. Nike and Intel are among the bigger businesses supporting that opposition campaign, or I guess opposing the yes campaign. The corporate group has bought ads warning the metro measure might harm struggling businesses and employees. Major environmental coalitions are framing it another way, though. They say the measure is a significant way to reduce carbon emissions and build energy-efficient infrastructure. And advocates say the measure is a way to create new jobs, especially in the construction industry. Some top Oregon Democrats are considering suing over Governor Brown's recent budget vetoes. Governor Kate Brown, also a Democrat, of course. In August, the Oregon Senate held a special session to balance the state budget. They passed six bills. On Monday, Governor Kate Brown approved most of the budget, but selectively vetoed a few line items in two of those bills. She did it to redirect funds toward wildfire relief. But now, some top Democrats in the legislature are considering a lawsuit against the governor. There is not an argument that Brown's vetoes on the main bill were legal, but the other vetoes are more ambiguous. Lawmakers say Brown's actions set a bad precedent. Senate President Peter Courtney and House Speaker Tina Kotek have to decide whether an in-party dispute is worth it. Between the pandemic, wildfires, troubled economy, and election season, a long overdue racial awakening, House and Senate Democrats might have different fish to fry. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler has issued an ultimatum to a county agency who provides service to the homeless. During an interview with the Oregonian, that's a newspaper here, Mayor Wheeler said he wanted to provide more aid to those experiencing homelessness. How does he plan to do it? He threatened to pull funding from the Joint Offices of Homeless Services if staffers can't produce 300 new beds in shelters by November. The Joint Office of Homeless Services is a shared agency between county and city governments. Losing funding from the city would be a big blow to that agency. County officials say the agency is doing important work. This May, the office championed a new income tax on high earners that would raise $250 million a year to provide homeless services. And since Wheeler became mayor, shelter bed capacity has been doubled. Most of those efforts began before Wheeler was elected. 
Multnomah County Chair Deborah Kafori critiqued Wheeler's ultimatum. She had this to say, and I'm quoting, his threat to undo the progress this community has made and risk services for thousands of people is merely a desperate attempt to win a contentious re-election campaign. Ouch. And a ripple of hope. When school districts canceled meal services, the mom block made food and supply deliveries. The wall of moms might be gone, but from its ashes emerged the mom block, spelled MXM block. They're an anti-racist mutual aid group run by BIPOC mothers. When Portland Public Schools paused meal deliveries due to the bad air quality, the mom block stepped in. The group collected and delivered supplies for 700 families that weekend. They provided food, hygiene products, first aid supplies. In addition to wildfire relief, the group also provides protest support and anti-racist education. Even as air quality improves, the mom block is working to strengthen Portland communities. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next, we have an interview with Jennifer Rhodes, president of the Southwest Washington Community Foundation. She talks about Give More 24, a day of giving in Southwest Washington that's happening today. And Jennifer gives us some insight on what makes Southwest Washington Community Foundation so unique. Here's Jennifer Rhodes speaking with X-Ray's Jefferson Smith. You can find out more at givemore24.org. Jennifer, hello. Good morning. Thanks for having me on, Jefferson. What makes the Southwestern Washington Community Foundation a special charitable group? What makes it unique? <laughs> I guess what's unique is that within a 24-hour period of time, you can choose from over 230 different nonprofits, different cause areas that you care about, and give. I so think if you we had need a day of hope right now. So you could, it's like 10 an hour if you took one hour off. I, lo- I love that suggestion, yes. So which hour are we taking off? Probably like 3 a.m. to 4 a.m., that'd be my guess. Yeah, I would say the worst, probably, okay. right there. And so who gets the 2 a.m.? How do you parse them out? Who gets 2 a.m. to 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. to 5 a.m.? Like, how do you pick? <laughs> who gets, like, 5 p.m., like, drive time? Who gets drive time? How do you pick? It would be, um, you know, probably some nonprofits that just function better in the morning, I guess. <laughs> morning people, nonprofits? <laughs> this nonprofit is It's about breakfast. This is a bacon and eggs nonprofit. Who are some of the nonprofits that you want to shine a light on? I know it's hard to pick. We don't have time for 230 probably, but what are, the, what are a couple you want to shine a light on as examples? Well, you know, I, what, I, what I'd like to do is maybe shine a light on um, a little bit more on the mechanics and how it works. Fine. Um, so, you know, let's talk about cause areas. If you care about food insecurity or homelessness or the arts, you can kind of choose a cause area and then – all you have to do is donate a minimum of $5 per nonprofit. And this year we have more than $600,000 in matching dollars. Nice. So if you give $25, most likely it's being matched dollar for dollar up to another $25 for that nonprofit. And how do you so, arrange the matching dollars? Is that from you go out to larger individual givers and say, hey, will you do a matching gift? Does that come from existing uh, foundation funds? How does that work? Exactly. Uh, Some of it are existing foundation funds and our donors that work with us directly at the Community Foundation. And then the nonprofits themselves work with their donors to procure those matching funds. So it's a combination. Got it. And so this time you got about 600,000, more than half a million dollars in matching funds. You're hoping to raise uh, over a million dollars. How long have you been doing Give More 24? This will be our seventh year. And actually, we have a pretty big goal this year. We're trying to raise $2 million this year. 
So, uh, oh, so, so, year, so you have 600 to start as the match, and you're trying to get two, 2 million. Yeah, what was the where did you reach last year? Uh, over 1.6 million. 1.6. So it's give more 24. So seven years ago, was it give more 17? No. Is it going to be <laughs> give more 25 next year? I don't understand how no. it works. No, and it just happens to be on the 20. It's give more 24 representing 24 hours. It oh, happens okay. to fall on September 24th this year. So. All right, well, that's good. Yeah, it makes it a little easier to remember. So now it's virtual. In the past, it hasn't been virtual. What did you you have it? At, what did you do in the past, and what are you doing now? It's all on Zoom. Yeah. So you know, in the past, the fun thing was around the community, all the way up into Cowlitz County, Clark, and Skamania, There would be in-person events that people could go and just you know be with each other and celebrate philanthropy. One of my favorite last year was goat yoga. Uh, you were able to go have do yoga in a field with some goats. Um, And that was supporting the North County Food Bank. Uh, Unfortunately, this year we won't be able to do those in-person events. So um, goat yoga, I think is I think if you look at white people in the dictionary, I think goat yoga is right. I think it's the whitest people thing (laughs) in the 21st century. (laughs) I'm ashamed, but I like I my first reaction. That sounds great. I'm like, oh, Jeff, yeah, it's not. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. If I don't, I don't know. Having goats climb on you, I'm not quite sure. I mean, it's a galatea. I don't think the goat cares. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just making a guess on the goat yoga demography. I'll move on from that. I don't want to make it a self-fulfilling prophecy. I don't want to try to cast aspersions on the goats. It's not their fault. Uh, or how about there was another one. It was um, karaoke uh, like in a taxi. So you could catch a ride, and then you got to um, sing, and they would film you uh, doing your favorite karaoke song. Oh, that nice. Was, it's like Taxi Cab Confessions, but instead for dulcet melodies. Exactly. And, and that you sounds know. fun. I would totally do that. I mean, I don't know if I would do it now and give somebody a communicable disease, which is probably why you're doing this virtually. So you can have your karaoke taxi cab by Zoom without giving somebody a communicable disease. Exactly. So one example of an event is, I think, between 5 and 7, we're doing a happy hour where we're having local musicians come into a studio. You can tune into it on givemore24.org. You can, you can enjoy, you know, a drink at your home, and you can watch some great music, and we'll have some entertainment. Um, so different things like that. We'll have, all of the events are listed on the uh, webpage at givemore24.org, so you can see what specific nonprofits are doing things virtually. Oh, I'm going to that web page. Yeah. So is Give More 24, is that a national thing that you do one of, or you just invented the whole thing and you own the whole deal? <laughs> we did not invent the whole thing. We definitely borrowed the idea, but no. about eight or nine years ago, these days of giving became quite popular across the country, and we decided to start one for Southwest Washington. And uh, you're familiar with Giving Tuesday that falls after Thanksgiving. I always forget which day it is, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Tuesday after Thanksgiving. So that's a that's a nationally um, promoted Giving Day. Ours is uh, hyper local, and it really supports nonprofits that are either located in Clark, Cowlitz, and Skamania counties, or nonprofits that serve people in those counties. So we do have some. Portland nonprofits that do work up in Clark County and Cowlitz that are also part of the day. You also have a countdown. It begins in six days, 15 hours, 16 minutes, 12, 11, 10, <laughs> 9, 8 seconds to go is going to be Give More 24. Uh, COVID-19 racial justice and now wildfire relief are some of the major issues in our communities that we have been focused on this summer how has your planning changed? How have you tried to show up 
for stuff that feels so urgent. That's not to set aside anything. Heck, it's not even to set aside goat yoga. But is the, what's the Community Foundation doing to amplify these struggles and these needs? You know, I think, first of all, um, it's been a tough year. And uh, leading into this, we actually created a fund that um, helped uh, issues related to COVID. We've given away about $5.6 million in Southwest Washington. And that was all raised by local, um, local donors. Um, we have been supporting organizations led by people of color um, that are focused on social justice, which is very critical um, these times. And what we wanted to make sure about Give More 24 is um, we really view it as a day, as I said a little bit earlier, a day for people to just have a little hope and, and a day of action for people where they feel like they can make a difference. Because um, now, even with these wildfires, we're all feeling a little defeated. Um, we're concerned yeah. about our neighbors uh, in Oregon, for sure. And so... We think that this is a, a place where people can give back. We, we can't all go and, and lend somebody a motorhome or, you know, um, drive food down uh, to an evacuation site, but we can give money to organizations that will do that. And, and really on this day, there's just about a cause area that's important to anyone. And so it's it's good to do a little research on the site. And actually, even though the day isn't until next Thursday, uh, you can start giving online now. It just won't show up on the totals until the morning that we kind of turn it on. Well, I really appreciate your work, and I appreciate you uh, spending the time. We're talking to Jennifer Rhodes of the Southwestern Washington Community Foundation. I want to. We got a couple more minutes. I want to ask. Uh, I want to ask another question. Something that okay. I learned, but I haven't read it. Okay, I have not. I'm taking, by the way, this this is information you will not care about, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. I am taking a class on clinical research administration at Cal Berkeley. I know it's a strange thing, and okay. the I'm, I, I have 100 percent so far. I'm an excellent student, but the uh, uh, but it's a, we haven't taken our midterm yet, which is why I have 100 uh, <laughs> percent. And the uh, and you know it's all about controlled experiments, and so now I've tried to listen to data and pay attention to where there's actually, you know, real, real science done on something. So I, what I'm about to ask is not based on real science, based on rumor. But my understanding, nonetheless, is that the uh, that foundations in southwest Washington have been growing over the past 10 years, that that southwestern Washington has been growing in terms of wealth in the last 20 years, and that how that is in part chalked up because people are moving to southwest Washington after exit events and in, in part because of the different treatment of capital gains tax. So that if somebody, so for instance, somebody was a sponsor actually at X-Ray, sold their business, and just before that sale went through, they bought a place and actually moved to Vancouver because that meant that that saved them. But, you know, it saved them a couple hundred thousand dollars. I think it might have saved them like $300,000. It meant that it helped really pay for their house. It was like getting an extra little house uh, because they moved to Washington just before they did that. Do I have that dynamic roughly right? Is it true that Southwest Washington's sort of charitable giving is becoming a bigger thing? So it is true that people do move into Southwest Washington for tax purposes. We, we do see that. Um, I would say, and going back to the data, um, I would say because we have more people living here, our charitable giving has grown. I would say we're pretty um, similar uh, regionally and nationally on a percentage basis of income 
uh, that people give. And, and what's interesting is um, it's not an exact science in tracking charitable giving, um, but there is an organization called Giving USA that does track this um, every year. And, you know, it's usually within 10 to 30 basis points, similar year in and year out. So um, we don't see a dramatic difference on a percentage basis in Southwest Washington. But because more people live and, and move in, just um, it, it's more dollars that way, if that makes sense. It does. We just have a, a per, same percentage of a larger part of the pie. Jennifer Rhodes, Southwestern Washington Community Foundation. Jennifer Rhodes, thank you so much for doing it. Thank you. Hope to see everyone on the day. Appreciate you. Thanks to Jennifer for joining The Local. Thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing, giving your five-star review, and thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.